So my number five is actually kind of in the same lane. And I, I mentioned earlier, Avid Networking. And if I, I look at the RIA and I have so much of my business, I attribute to relationships that were generated right here at the RIA. Um, from the banks that I use to the contractors that I use to the other wholesalers and investors that I bought houses from. Um, I, I was here in January or maybe it was December. You and I were talking mm-hmm. and you, I was, you know, how's business? You're like, Oh, I got all these projects going on. You're kind of rolling your eyes. <laughs> and I was like, Oh, let me help you out with one. You're naming where they're at. And you said one of them was an Elkhorn. I was yep. like, I live in Elkhorn. Let me take that one off your hands. And you sold me that house. Yep, that's that's true. Hundred percent true. We were you, yeah, we were you standing right there. It. You, yeah. yeah, we were standing just right there. And you made your quick profit, your quick buck, yeah. because you had so many projects going on. You didn't want to deal with all of them at the same time. And then I was able to turn a, a quick profit on the deal. Everybody won. We didn't have to be enemies. Yeah. And it was it happened right here at the RIA. Yeah, and it's, the more you network, the more you tell people what you're doing, the more you talk to people. It's amazing what doors open up. Yeah, you just you have to make it part of your. It's it, it is your thing, right? So like, because a lot of people are like, oh, I can't make it up. Blah blah blah. I have life going on. It's like you have to make that. It is every bit as important to your business as marketing or uh, any other core things that are you know revenue generators because that it is it is for real. Like you you meet you don't know who you're going to meet or you don't know who you're going to talk to that may have a deal you may have a deal if they want vice versa so you have to make it a thing like it has to be on your calendar welcome to ria radio episode 47 with owen dashner and clint bartlett you're listening to ria radio the nationally trusted name in real estate investing We dig deep to discover investors' why in real estate. If you want to skip all the BS and get in investors' heads, you're in the right spot. Be one of the thousands to check out RioRadio.com. Hey guys, Ted Kosh here with Omaha Ria. Uh, what you are about to listen to is something that you've probably heard mentioned three or four times, but there was an awesome live event at the Omaha Ria event, and we had Clint Barlett interview Owen Dashner. Now, Clint has a podcast called uh, Flipping Failures. He failed by uh, stop recording episodes, and this episode was supposed to go on almost a year ago. And so the content's going to be a little bit older, but it's such a great podcast. We thought you guys would absolutely love it. And I have, okay, so if you listen to Clint's podcast, and you'll see in the show notes which podcast we have with Clint, you'll hear me give him a hard time. Like, dude, when are we going to get this podcast up? Well, I have completely given up on him doing it. I don't even know if he's ever going to have another podcast. He had an amazing podcast. I was even on his podcast um, I think that was actually one of his last two episodes, so check that out. We'll put we'll put that in the show notes also if you want to hear a little bit about more what I get what I, I personally had going on at that time. But these guys, they just go back and forth, and they're both amazing interviewers. This is before we even started the the Ria Radio podcast, so check it out. I thought you guys would love it, and uh, if you love what you're hearing, please give us a five star review on whatever format you're listening to us on, but especially. If you are on Apple, please give us an actual written review. We'd love it. So, hey, guys, check this out. Let Give us your feedback, and we will see you next week. You, you can sit on my knee. Feel a little comfortable. When you're ready, I'll do a quick introduction of how it's going to go. Okay. Yeah.
Oh, I should get my phone out so I can have the. Okay, guys. So just so you know, this will be a live recording. So uh, how we're going to start this school. off is these two are going to do it like a, just a traditional podcast, and they're going to do their uh, just one-on-one -on -one interview. During that interview, we ask that nobody interrupt. At the end of the interview, we will do a Q&A session, but because this is recorded, we do require that you guys have a mic in hand. When you guys ask questions, please hold on to the mic in case there's a follow-up question. That way, we're getting it all recorded. Otherwise, it can mess it all up, and you guys are listening to this later, and then you're like, why is my voice only on there for a minute, and I don't hear the rest of the question? So we appreciate you guys. I'll let you guys take it from here. Thank you so much. This is it? This is it. We're starting? Doing it. Are we recording? Live podcast, flipping failure, squiggly lines. All right, everybody, please get your phone out and get on iTunes and look at flipping failure, Clint Bartlett, and give us a five-star review before. Yeah, do it now. And then if you change your mind after the podcast, you can bring it back down to a one-star review. But seriously, please get your phones out and do that. We'd really appreciate it. We have two reviews right now on the Flipping Failure podcast. It's brand new. Uh, started doing it this year. Uh, I'm the podcast host, and I actually absolutely hate doing this. I, it is not me, it's not my personality to be a podcast host, but in the spirit of stepping out of my comfort zone and doing things I don't like to do, I decided to do it this year. And today, I have a very special guest, Mr. Owen Dashner. If there's any investor in Omaha that I wish would just disappear, <laughs> it is actually Owen Dashner. And it, I, I mean that. I really mean that. But in a heartfelt way, Owen is probably my top, what I consider my top competitor uh, in the Omaha market because he, he markets to a lot of the same data that I do. And we end up at a lot of the same houses competing one-on-one -on -one against each other. So for that reason, I do want him to disappear. But I will say this as well. Um, just in the last year, I think we I bought three houses from you guys. Mm -hmm. and we've um, been allies. And I think there's something that's kind of neat about being a competitor and an ally at the same time. So we'll probably, there'll probably be a little bit more of that today. Um, so what to expect for today's podcast. Um, this is a, a double blind study we ran. Owen and I are both going to do a little introduction. So we're going to give Owen a second to introduce himself so we can learn a little bit about who he is and what he's done and where he's been. And I'll do the same. And then each one of us came up with our own top 10 uh, habits, mindsets, um, skill sets, um, characteristics of an effective real estate investor. And we're going to start at number 10 and work our way down. We each did, it, did this individually, so there could be some overlap. Uh, but we started at 10, work all the way down to 1. That's what we're going to do today, if you're good with that. So without further ado, I'm going to let our... VIP guest Owen Dashner introduce himself. I'm, Owen. So, I'm so honored to be here. And thank hey, you for for uh, finally accepting my begging to get on this with you. So I know. You I was standing outside so his house with uh, like a say anything boombox yes. and yeah. yeah. So thank Owen, you. I know you're super nervous. Yeah. Um, just pretend like it's me and you in a room okay. with about a hundred people yeah. listening in on a very private conversation. Just <laughs> that's the scenario we're in. Love it. Okay. All right. Let's hear it. Um, okay, so um, I spent about 20 years in corporate America. I started out in, uh, in recruiting. I was an IT headhunter, eventually got into corporate HR and recruiting, and then started running um, like team lead projects for implementing um, applicant tracking systems and that kind of thing. I worked at ConAgra, which I know you worked at ConAgra. Yeah, thank you, I think. Um, <laughs> After ConAgra, I went to IBM, uh, did kind of more of the same there, recruited uh, technology and functional business consultants for their global consulting arm. And then after that, one of the divisions of IBM got bought by Ricoh, a Japanese like printing, scanning, copying, consulting firm. I worked for them for about 10 years. 
And uh, eventually, um, and I was working from home since about 2005, which also was the year I bought my first investment property. So I bought a flip in Council Bluffs and it was um, nine months of my life that uh, I made about $2 an hour uh, doing that. I would work about 60 hours a week at ConAgra, like no joke, that was kind of a uh, meat grinder there. So I take off the suit, go over to Council Bluffs, get my gym bag out, throw on my clothes and pretend I knew what I was doing and I didn't at all. Uh, so I painted, I tore stuff up and then I kind of hired a couple of friends to come and um, bail me out on my uh, horrible remodeling skills. So that took about nine months. Um, and like I said, I didn't make much money and this is in 2005. So pretty good time, uh, similar to now. Um, still didn't make much money, but I did get turned on to another house that I ended up buying and I made about $40,000 and I didn't do anything to it. This was on Lake Manawa. Um, I didn't know what I had. I was panicking. Um, I told the seller, I'm like, I can't really afford to buy this right now. And this guy's like 90, I think he was 96 years old. Um, and he had, okay, council tucky jokes aside, he literally did have three teeth in his head. <laughs> and one of them wiggled when he talked. Like, so he would, he's telling me a story. And anyway, so I go through the house and I'm like, God, I really want to buy this. I know it's a smoking deal. If I give you your asking price of $95,000 for a lakefront, Lake Manoa house, will you wait six months for me to close it? So this is what I asked. This is legit happened. And he's like, okay, yeah, that's fine. So I met him at the title company. I have no idea what to do. I have a, I'm Googling, like if Google was even around then, I was, I was trying to find a for sale by owner purchase agreement, eventually got one, met him there, signed it. Six months go by and he thankfully is still alive by the time uh, I close on the property and end up selling. So I close on it and I get a loan and they appraise it and appraise for 169,000 as is. So the bank actually gave me all the money to buy it and I bought it for 95 grand. I literally sold it one month on the day that my first mortgage payment was due for 135,000. So I made 40 grand and then I was hooked. So over time, I kept working my day job and I would buy a rental or two. I'd flip a house so I could afford my rental habit. And then kind of fast forward to kind of the mid teens, I started buying smaller multifamily properties. And then I was, um, I was like, okay, I looked up and all of a sudden I'm 40 and I am like my job. And I felt bad about even complaining about it because I was making really good money working from home, not fulfilled at all. And uh, I just decided, you know what, screw this. I want to get serious about this and really see if I can make a go. And uh, that's when I started doing more like marketing. I uh, built, put up a website, started doing pay-per-click and uh, got serious about it. And I did, I think, 20 deals while working a full-time job in 2017. And I made about $240,000, and which, wow. which pretty much doubled my salary working at Rico. And at that time, that's when I kind of got the cojones to say, uh, see you later. So... Um, as I tend to do, I'm rambling a little bit, but uh, I met my now business partner with Red Ladder Property Solutions, Brandon Tauber, and uh, who's watching from home. Um, he and I just really lined up and clicked on a lot of just our outlook, our, um, our place in life, kind of our goals, our, our morals and all that. We started talking more and more about it, and he was a little dissatisfied with his career too. So um, long story longer, we ended up... Uh, quitting our jobs and forming Red Ladder. And then uh, we've been doing that ever since. Full-time, got an office, all that good stuff, so. Awesome. Uh, Owen, tell us, tell us a little bit more. Family life, what do you like to do? 
I know we heard a little bit a second ago, but for the yep. sake of the podcast. Uh, so I've been married since 2005. Actually, we just had an anniversary, so our 16 year. Congratulations. Um, my wife, Jen, uh, she's great. She is um, running the kids around tonight uh, to volleyball, I think, is the, the latest tonight. So I've got two girls, 9 and 12, Avery and Olivia, and uh, they're awesome. So I, we try and spend as much time as we can together. We live... Uh, in Carter Lake, we love to go boating. Uh, we've got some really cool neighbors that we like hanging out with. So I just like hanging out with them, you know, during the summertime. It's a lot of fun. I play a lot of golf, uh, not well, but, uh, get out as much as I can. Uh, I've been kind of like golf of Palooza the last, uh, month and a half here. I've been on like three trips. So I'm making hay while the sun shines. Awesome. Yeah. All right. Owen, thank you for sharing. I, I thought I'd heard you'd worked at ConAgra at some point and I, I didn't realize that our paths crossed that way as well. So I'll, I'll go real quick. Comment? No, I was just going to say I saw your file. So. Oh, wow. That's scary. Um, so I, I actually um, started my, my work career in, in California, in Southern California, working at a Frito-Lay factory uh, after I graduated from school. And I was a night shift manager of the Funyuns department. So I was watching over the employees making Funyuns. And it's a really surly group of people. Factory people are just mean. So it was a really good opportunity to learn about like just kind of dealing with hard people and hard situations. Um, I spent five years with Frito-Lay and wanted to make a move back to Omaha. It felt like it'd be better to raise a family here and took a job with ConAgra, actually working in Lincoln um, in a factory there making, and I'm not kidding with these words, poppycock, fiddle-faddle, and crunch and munch <laughs> were the three flavors of candied popcorn uh, that we made at that plant. And I was a production manager there, uh, spent a couple years commuting back and forth to Lincoln, and then took a job at, at corporate uh, here in downtown Omaha with ConAgra in co-manufacturing, managing just a bunch of different uh, third-party plants that made our product. So one of my favorite uh, accounts was um, I had a bunch of pie accounts like Apple Pie and like the Marie Callender's pie accounts. So mm -hmm. I'd go visit those plants and eat like a ton of like chocolate cake and, and apple pie. So that was my favorite thing. Um, but uh, like you, I started this very part-time, the real estate investing thing. Uh, my very first house that I flipped was on the MLS, and it was right before Christmas, and it was an estate sale, uh, a property in Westgate, which is kind of a good uh, middle-type neighborhood here in Omaha. And I partnered up with uh, still my business partner now, Jeff Cohn, uh, who was a real estate agent. Um, we had been talking and kind of ideating about buying a house and flipping a house or buying a rental. So we found this little $70,000 house and um, turned it. And like you, uh, I would leave and take very long lunch breaks and go try to manage a rehab. And you know, we were just doing simple paint carpet, moved a wall, uh, finished out a kitchen. And I am not handy at all. I was actually, I did some demo because that's pretty easy to to swing a hammer and, or a sledgehammer and, and mess some stuff up. But as far as putting it back together, I did none of that. It was just kind of working with contractors. But our very first flip, I think we, we made $11,000. And we immediately took that money and went on family vacations and spent it all. <laughs> so it was kind of a neat way to like consider it side money. Um, but did that from 2014 to 2016. Did a total of eight deals. And I cannot believe that you did 20 deals while working a full-time job. So for those of you that think that like the transition is easy, um, that's a lot of work hours, uh, just trying to picture a full-time job, managing that, family, and then 20 houses. I mean, that's a couple houses a month. 
So were you wholesaling those houses or fixing them all up or just buying and reselling real quick or it was, wholesaling? Or? It wasn't the first wholesale that I'd ever done, but I didn't know what it was when I did it. And yeah, so most of those were wholesales. So okay. I would just buy them, clean them out, clean them up, put it on the market. I mean, because we've been in a, what, 10-year bull market here yeah. for real estate. So I that was a huge eye-opener for me oh, because yeah. I used to be like, you know, when you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Mm-hmm. And this was a game changer. So I realized that the velocity of money is more important than what you do with the product. Mm. Did somebody write that down? I hope so. Uh, because, yeah, the time velocity of money can sometimes be exponentially more important than your return on investment, um, especially if you have limited resources. So that's why wholesaling is a, is a beautiful thing, because you can put it out to the market and let people pay what they're going to pay, yeah. um, which is Again, why we're competitors and why I want you to disappear because we're both taking houses and doing a lot of wholetailing and uh, doing a lot of holding as well. Um, and I don't know where I got sidetracked, but we did about eight deals in that two-year period. Um, and I did, and just to note, like when I quit my job at Conagra in 2016, um, didn't have any savings and wasn't making necessarily, I don't think I was making anywhere near the money you were, but we had five deals in the pipeline. And it was enough runway for me to justify quitting my job and running our flipping company. So that was kind of a um, looking back, it didn't feel that risky, but I'm realizing it was kind of risky because there wasn't a lot of savings. I had credit card debt and it was like, well, these five deals should make us some money. And it ended up that we could string together enough deals to, to make the transition. Um, but I will say it was life changing to be able to go full time, um, exiting the day job and making that transition and kind of cutting the, what do they say, cutting the parachute or, well, you yeah. wouldn't want to cut a parachute. I don't know. Cutting the cord? Cutting the cord? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Burn the bridge? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Burn the ships. It's got your parables next to okay. it. That's all. All right. Yeah. Um, but it really forces you into a situation where you have to survive. And um, it completely changed my mentality. So one thing that I always recommend to people that you find a way to force yourself to commit to something and go all in. Um, because it, it is life-changing once you put yourself in that situation. It takes a little bit of courage. It takes a lot of research, um, but do it. It, is, uh, it can change everything. So today, what Owen and I are going to do is each share our top 10 skills, habits, mindsets of an effective real estate investor. I have no idea what he's going to share with you. We're going to just go back and forth and start with our number 10s and work all the way up to number one. And then uh, we'll jump into some Q&A about what we share today or anything else in the real estate investing world. Um, oh, and I don't know if you, I, our businesses are very similar. Um, last year we bought about, my company bought 60 houses. Um, the previous couple years we were hovering around 70, 75 houses. Um, and last year we held uh, 22 of those 60 for a rental portfolio. So we are way into buying and holding um, single family residents. And uh, we do a lot of wholetailing as well. So that's a little bit about me, Owen. I think your business model is pretty much the same. Yeah, very similar. Um, my a lot of my holdings were just ones that I had accumulated over the years, and then got into smaller multis, and just kind of kept. I've traded up a couple of times, mm-hmm. um, but Brandon and I, since we formed Red Ladder, we've also started picking up rentals. So we're kind of cherry picking the ones that we want to keep in parts of town that we think are mm-hmm. going to be good long term plays, and that uh, you know are just solid assets. So yep. I think we have we have like nine rentals. Okay. But, um, I've got about 130-ish. Whoa. It's kind of a moving Small target. Flex. Yeah. I like that. <laughs> oh. um, That's awesome. Yeah. Okay. Let's dive in. 
Um, top 10, what is your number 10? So we're working descending order. Okay, well, I full disclosure, okay. I didn't know these were in order. So oh. these are top 10 cumulatively. Well, you like, need to act on... Okay, all right, all right. Kind of I can roll with this. Here. Start with your okay. number 10. So, uh, so my number 10 is balancing ambition with family, health, uh, mental and physical, and relationships. Hmm. So it's no. a... It's a tough. Uh, it's it's tough when you're ambitious and driven uh, to really kind of achieve that. I don't know harmony, for lack of a better word, with your family and your personal life and just your own mental health. But I think it's it's really important and not talked about enough. Um, and I'm not perfect by any means in any stretch of the imagination, but I try, and that's something that I kind of keep on my on my you know my list. So I try and shut it down when I can, spend time with the family. And then, uh, you know, after the kids go to bed, maybe I'll get up and do some emails or whatever. But I really, that's, that's you know, number 10 on my list. I like that. I think um, it, when you're passionate about something, it is a double-edged sword. Um, yep. And it can, uh, relationships can be destroyed as you seek your passion. Yep. And uh, my wife and I, Marie, who's in the room today, I think we found ourselves in that trap at times because she's also a, a passionate real estate agent and investor. And sometimes we just dive into our work. And it can be uh, very easy to be so focused on something great and something important, but lose out uh, on the very thing that you started the whole, yeah, the whole thing for. So, well, I think point. it's tough. It's tough too when you like when you get to a certain experience level. I was going to say age, but I know you're a little younger than I am. When you get to a certain experience level, things become a little easier in your professional life, and it gets to be fun, especially when you're working on stuff that you want to work on. Mm -hmm. It's your business now. You own it. You're not just working some crappy job. And when you own it and you really are passionate about it and you want to dive into it, it's tough to kind of put the governor on um, with those things. So I think, uh, you know, having just kind of guardrails on your on your life with those things and checkpoints and people to kind of check you on that. Like, hey, yeah. how's how's it going? How's yeah. your how's your personal life type yeah. thing? Intentional. I like that. My number 10 is curiosity. And I, I put curiosity because I was kind of thinking of my beginning stages of exiting my day job. And it really started with listening to podcasts. Um, I would commute to Lincoln and listen to a podcast on the way to work and then listen to a podcast on the way home. And through that process, I gained enough confidence to realize that like, I, I could do this because as you listen to people talk about real estate investing, you realize they're pretty simple people. No offense to either one of us, but it's a pretty straightforward process and listening to all the different stories and backgrounds and what everybody had accomplished, it was like, this is, this is all very doable. So I think curiosity is a really important characteristic for a real estate investor to have because it's what leads you into that learning process for, um, for really growing in the space. Well, it also helps a lot with being a podcast host. You're curious about people, you ask a lot of questions. Yeah. Um, meeting with motivated sellers, that's a really good uh, skill to have too and a really important one because you want to ask and listen to what they're saying and it may not always be really uh, clear on what their motivations are. So you have to ask questions and, and kind of dig down into that. So that's, mm -hmm. I think, me being in recruiting for so many years, I've interviewed thousands and thousands of people. Um, I just, like, it's just normal for me. Like I meet somebody and I just ask questions until I find something that we have in common and then you can just kind of drill in on that. And, yeah. and I don't do it intentionally, but that's just kind of how it goes. And how does somebody feel who comes up to them, is super interested, asks them a hundred questions? I mean, that person's your new best friend. Yeah. I mean, I, 
most people like talking about themselves, and uh, when you can make it easy for them, they uh, tend to laugh. Wow, yeah. that person was really interesting, yeah. and then they're like, "I know nothing about them." Yeah. Afterwards, well, it's especially useful when you do it when you really are interested, and yeah. it's you know there's a real interest there when you're curious about people, you ask them questions. Um, I think people can kind of see through it if it's a sales tactic. You know what I mean? Agree. All right, let's move on. Number nine. What do you got? Number nine. Focus on processes not just results. So this one may not apply to everyone, but this is something I've really tried to do a lot more of recently instead of just throwing out a big goal without a clear path to get there. Focusing on the input, so like not just how many deals are you gonna do this year, how many doors are you gonna buy, but more how many offers is it going to take for you to get a deal and focus on the offers. And then even beyond that, how many how many potential leads are you going to have to get to even make those offers? So you have to look at what's going in the funnel, not just what's going coming out the bottom, because there could be all kinds of things broken in there that aren't leading to a good output. That is, I mean, can I just have you read my number nine as well? Processes, process and system oriented. And what was yours? Mine was focus on processes, not just results. So we lined up perfectly on that one. That was awesome. So if I could just emphasize what you just said, I heard it once explained as leading and lagging indicators. So a leading indicator is an action. It's a measurable action. A lagging indicator is a result. And in any business function, a lot of times we like to measure a lagging indicator like, oh, how many flips did I do? But that, how many flips you did is only a result of an action that you took. Like you said, making an offer is a leading indicator because you can control that. You could go knock on 10 doors every day and make sure you make 10 offers every day. So focusing on the leading indicators that drive the result is really more important than anything else. Yeah, and it, and it, it really uh, magnifies the things that you're doing on the front end. So if you focus on lead indicators and you amp up, say, even by one offer a week, right? And over time, that could lead to just a multiplier of, of the amount of deals that you're doing. And when you look at over a five-year, 10-year period, I mean, you're talking gigantic swings of wealth and income and, and all that. So I think those are those are just huge things and that you can do. Didn't you recently, you decided one of your goals this year was to make more offers. You started making yes. offers yep. in MLS. Yep. How's that been for you, controlling that leading indicator? Have you guys measured yeah, I, the change? So I have, a, I have a spreadsheet that I track every week and it's got columns of just uh, business things and then also personal, like, you know, um, you know, keeping track of how many days I'm journaling and, you know, meditating and all that, all that stuff. But also, how many, uh, how many offers have I made? My, my goal, our goal this year was to make an offer a day. And so if you cut out the, the weekends, that's roughly about 260 days uh, or 260 offers a year. So if you focus on that input, I think you'll be happy with the outcome of it because especially when you're, as you know, when you're dealing with motivated sellers, a lot of times you can get bunches of them that come in and they're good leads, right? So you can have, you can kind of hammer away at them. And then when you're, when you're in a down period, like let's say we were uh, kind of December, January, like we got nothing that mm -hmm. came in for leads. We started really just hammering the MLS and then really trying to develop, you know, keep on top of uh, wholesalers that we, yeah. we like working with. So we look at different channels, but the, the emphasis was always on offers, not on how many houses are we getting. So control that part and then the rest of it will take care of itself. Love it. All right. Where are we at? Number eight? Number eight. What do you got? Um, so seek out and spend time with high level goal oriented people, um, either in one-on-one -on -one or small group sessions. I love this one. Like it's, it's one of my favorites. Um, I, I'm with you on it. Um, mine actually, my, I, mine says avid networker. That's my number five. So we, we lined up on that one. Um, do you want to expound anything on that? 
No, I just think I, so I kind of did this exercise where I, I tried to reverse engineer uh, the deals and uh, relationships that I've had and where they originated. And that's an interesting exercise to go through. So it could be that you bought, you know, three deals from us over the last year. And it's like, okay, how did that happen exactly? And then you think back and it's like, well, we spent time together. We got to know each other. We mutual trust and respect and all, and all that. Right. And, uh, but outside of that, you have this network of people that, um, you, it's your job to develop that network and not, and I'm not just talking like you're, you're in it only for getting something out of it. That's not what I mean. I mean, you seek out people that are, they're high level goal oriented people that just get after it and they're, you know, they're accountable. And that's the kind of people I want to surround myself with. So if you do that, you're going to have opportunities that come up that you had no idea were even possible and you, you couldn't even predict. So you can't say, I'm going to go out and do this because it'll lead to that. It's just, you don't know. So just put yourself out there as much as you can and spend time with people that are, that are like that. And just good things are going to happen. So true. Uh, my number eight is KPI tracking. And for those of you who don't know, KPI is key performance indicator. So again, this, um, this kind of couples up with my processes of leading indicators, but you have to track everything that you do, um, especially if you are going to start marketing um, and doing some paid marketing. Track and measure everything, um, whether it's how many offers you're making, how many postcards you're sending, what your response rate is. The more you track uh, and the more you measure, the more you're going to be able to um, make adjustments in your business and really start to understand where your deals are coming from and where your, your money and your time is best spent. And I think it can be very easy, especially um, at our level, Owen. Um, sometimes successful people don't track what they're doing and it puts them in a situation where they have to keep doing all of the things. And even if it is, uh, a, if there's a big cash eating monster piece of their business that where they're losing money, they don't know it. So they keep doing that thing, whether it's an expensive piece of marketing that's not getting the return. If you're not tracking, then you have to keep doing everything to get the same result that you're getting. So uh, it can be easy to stop tracking and measuring if you have some levels of success. But if you stop doing it, you're throwing money away. 100% agree. And I think marketing is probably your glaringly obvious, you know, um, way that you can kind of tell those things. If you don't track that, you're just throwing stuff against the wall and you don't know what, what's effective and what's not. And then also employees, that's uh, even more important too, right? So you hire somebody as a, as a staff member, you have to measure their performance or let them know kind of where they're not performing or where they are. Yep. Right. So, and I'm yeah. guilty of not tracking all the time <laughs> and I, I feel it's pain. Yeah. All right. Uh, number, Seven. Okay. So time block your calendar to work on your fitness reflection and learning. And I have this on here because I think a lot of people, myself included, you get in into times where you're busy, 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 and you, you forget, you're like, Oh, I haven't listened to a podcast lately, or I haven't, I haven't spent any time reading or, you know, just kind of researching and uh, just keeping your brain sharp or just journaling and trying to spend time, like thinking about what's important in your life. And are you on the right track? Right. Um, so I think time blocking has helped me a lot. I know like every morning, like fitness is important to me. So I need to, you know, I got to work at it to, to stay healthy and I have to time block my calendar. Otherwise it can just go by the wayside. So I think, uh, I think that's key. I don't know if everybody does that, but I know it's a recurring theme among a lot of people that I respect that have, you know, um, good, good habits. Have you read the one thing? Yep. Okay. Love so that book. That's a, a Gary Keller. I think, I don't know if he coined it, but time blocking. Oh, is that a thing? That no, you I think coined? I did. I, you I think coined, you coined it? Okay. Yeah. Well done. 
so agree. If it's not on your calendar and if it's not time blocked, usually in the morning, um, it's probably not going to get done. It's yeah. probably going to just be a kind of a, a passing fancy. I, I completely agree. My number seven is a more of a characteristic. And I put cautious risk taker. And um, I've always considered myself pretty conservative um, in my business, especially when you think about buying a house, you're talking about throwing out 50 or 100 or 200 or $300,000 at something and hoping that it gets some sort of a return. Um, but what I've learned is that over time, do it through the repetition, that I can um, cautiously take a risk if that's not an oxymoron. And the way I like to think of it is like if there was ever um, like a trading stock or a day trader situation, like there's no way that I could cautiously do that because I have no idea what I'm doing. I've not educated myself at all in that area. Um, but because I've spent hours and hours learning and repetition and practice, um, I now can mitigate a ton of risk buying a property, um, knowing that if it's not going to make money, it may even, it may just break even or may just make a little bit. Um, and it puts you in a position to rarely lose. Um, so I, I think that it's very easy to never take action because there's a, some big risk involved, but the more education that takes place, you can mitigate a ton of risk. My, my, my number three was know your numbers. They're the foundation of your business. Housing prices, rental rates, rehab costs. Those are the critical components to your success. So I think that goes exactly yeah. right, right along. Cause when you have the knowledge and the, and the foundation and uh, repetition of just knowing your numbers by, by research and just doing it, then it takes a lot of the risk out of the deal. Yeah, I completely agree. Yeah, so I'm sure you're the same way. There's sometimes where I we're buying houses sight unseen. I'm sure there's yep. you buy houses you've not seen. Yep. And the decision process is five minutes yep. um, to buy a house or not to buy. Um, bought one this weekend from a wholesaler in the room, a couple of houses, but um, who was that? What? Who was that? To be unnamed. Um, but it's literally with with a couple of videos and a, or a couple of pictures and running some comps. It, again, because of repetition, the decision is that quick. Um, so I, I think that, like you said, knowing your numbers, very important. Uh, where are we at? Number six? Number six. Number six. Spend time on high value activities. Don't do a $10 task just because you can. Okay. Any examples of what a high value activity is for you? Well, I think for me, and I get... I get made fun of about this, but for me, honestly, the best use of my time is spending time networking with other people that um, are potential, you know, customers, clients, uh, other investors that, you know, we could do potential deals with. I think that's probably the highest and best use of my time. And then also spending time in the living room with motivated sellers. Those two things. That's it. If I could do only those two things, I'd be perfectly be happy. happy. Man. Yeah. Um, agree. My, my, I consider my highest value time spent, like you said, uh, meeting with sellers. I love going on appointments. I don't like any of the stuff that happens before going on the appointment, um, which is why I have an acquisition manager in my business because they nurture the leads. They help um, do all the follow-up, setting up the appointment, doing the pre-screen on the phone. So I just want to have an appointment where I show up and get to meet with somebody face-to-face. -face. So I think that's important to eliminate all the things that you don't want to do or that is a $10 an hour activity. Yeah. And I think, you know, we're all guilty of that, right? We do administrative things that we probably shouldn't be doing or whatever, but you know, sometimes you also want to feel like a man, like you gotta, you know, you fix something yeah. or whatever. I don't, you gotta mix that in once yeah. in a while. Yeah. Right? Agree. Agree. Um, my number six is become a skilled marketer. 
And it, marketing doesn't just mean spending money. You can market in real estate investing in a ton of different ways, um, driving for dollars, um, putting out bandit signs. You can spend a hundred bucks on bandit signs and put them all over town. There's a ton of ways to, to go start marketing and um, get a, a huge return. But in, in the real estate investing world, I think that HGTV kind of um, confuses people to make them think that fixing up houses is how you generate a profit. And that is not true. You make your money when you buy the house and you get paid when you sell. So the profit is made at the discount buy and you buy the discount when you understand how to market to motivated sellers. Um, because obviously, if you're looking on the MLS right now, it's probably hard to buy at a deep discount. So understanding marketing is like my pretty important thing if you're gonna be a real estate investor and understanding who you're marketing to and, and how to market to them. For example, my top three platform right now is, um, is direct mail, cold calling, and PPC. And I, I've sprinkled in a lot of things over the years. I'm doing a little bit of radio and a little bit of TV ads because they're really cheap. Um, but I, you have to know what your core is and you have to know who you're marketing to. For example, if you're a real estate investor marketing and you're not sending postcards or marketing to, for example, vacant properties and absentee owners, uh, then you're probably leaving some money on the table. So there's a lot to be said for marketing, in my opinion. Completely agree. All right. Are we okay? We've already broken through five. We're in number four. Are we? Or did I skip one? I think five is next. Oh, okay. Five's next. Okay, go ahead. Uh, so I, I have for number five: build a network of experts. So agents, attorneys, lenders, contractors, accountants. Those are your main core people that you're going to rely on when it comes to getting a deal, landing it, financing it, making sure you're you're covering your your butt uh, in the deal. And then, um, you know, making sure you're not paying uh, too much in, in the way of taxes and you're doing the right thing uh, to protect you and your family. Yeah. And I think a lot of solo investors, they go into it thinking they're alone. Um, but you, you already have a team that is right there. I mean, when you look at a contractor or a, a closer at the title company, your person helping with your mortgage, your lender, they are, they are on your team and you treat them that way. And you can watch your team flourish, um, even though you're not, they're not an employee that you're paying for, a W-9 employee, they're still a part of your team. Yeah, I totally agree. And if you treat, if you treat them right, I mean, they're, they're essentially um, on your same side, right? So they want to they see you succeed because they're going to get more business out of it. So if you do the right thing by them, it's going to, you know, everybody's going to be much happier. And yeah, you may have to over, over time kind of cut some people and replace them with, um, you know, better performers or whatever the case is, but uh, that's just part of the business. Um, but yeah, I think that's, that's an important one. So my number five is actually kind of in the same lane. And I, I mentioned earlier, Avid Networking. And if I, I look at the RIA and I have so much of my business, I attribute to relationships that were generated right here at the RIA um, from the banks that I use to the contractors that I use to the other wholesalers and investors that I bought houses from. Um, I, I was here in January or maybe it was December. You and I were talking mm -hmm. and you, I was, you know, how's business? You're like, oh, I got all these projects going on. You're kind of rolling your eyes. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, oh, let me help you out with one. You're naming where they're at. And you said one of them was in Elkhorn. I was yeah. like, I live in Elkhorn. Let me take that one off your hands. 
and you sold me that house. Yep, that's that's true. Hundred percent true. We were you, yeah, we were you standing right there. It. You, yep. Yeah, we were standing just right there, and you made your quick profit, your quick buck, yep. because you had so many projects going on. You didn't want to deal with all of them at the same time. And then I was able to turn a, a quick profit on the deal. Everybody won. We didn't have to be enemies. Yeah, and it was it happened right here at the Ria. Yeah, and it's, it's, the more you network, the more you tell people what you're doing, the more you talk to people, it's amazing what doors open up. Yeah, you just you have to make it part of your it's it, it is your thing, right? So like cuz a lot of people are like, "Oh, I can't make it up blah blah blah. I have life going on." It's like you have to make that it is every bit as important to your business as marketing or uh, any other core things that are, you know, revenue generators because that it is it, it is for real. Like you you meet, you don't know who you're going to meet or you don't know who you're going to talk to that may have a deal. You may have a deal that they want, vice versa. So you have to make it a thing. Like it has to be on your calendar. Yep. And it, I mean, networking, like I said, once a month on a, on a Tuesday night, I think we can all afford to carve it out of, yeah. on our schedule and come here. And I'd also say joining masterminds. I mean, this, before I quit my day job to think that I ever would have spent $25,000 to be a part of a a mastermind for a year. Um, this is a national group. Nate, I know you're a part of it. Um, seven figure flipping. It was the first mastermind that we joined. And that was like more than what I paid for anything ever, including like my entire education. Um, so it was kind of scary to put the money into that just to be a part of a network, to be a part of a group of people. But the learning and growth that came from joining up with that group of investors and the things that I changed my business as a result were life-changing the exponential growth i mean the twenty-five thousand dollars was nothing compared to what i got in a return so again networking being a part of every group that you could be a part of learning from peers in your market out of your market invaluable love it all right uh four what do you got do what you say you are going to do reputation is everything in this business amen mic drop Mic drop. We're, well, they're actually on the stand, so we're not going to drop them. Um, that's my number two, integrity. Um, there, there are would-be investors who are not in this room because they did not keep commitments. And it, you can ruin your entire reputation in a market by um, a, a few bad moves, and it's usually around integrity, not doing what you say you were going to do. Yeah. And it's... you. It takes so long to build up a solid reputation and, and you know, one bad decision to ruin it. Mm -hmm. So it's, you got, you got to be diligent about it. Watch it like it's your lifeblood because you have to remember if you say you're going to do something, do it. And if something happens, you know, and, and it goes sideways, take accountability for it. Yep. Um, good one. My number four is be a serial learner. And I'm guilty at times about getting a little bit lazy about my learning. Um, because when you spend a lot of years doing something, it can kind of become tiresome. Um, it gets old, but I still listen to podcasts, still read books. I still go to mastermind groups and learn from other investors. So I think that that's been a very critical part of my journey is constantly learning. And every year my business is different because of what I'm learning. So in this business, if you expect to come into it and just push a, a play button and hope that it repeats every year and that you get the same amount of deals, that's not how it works. You're constantly adjusting what you're doing to really meet your goals. Any uh, any new favorite podcasts you're listening to? Um, you know, I've I'm, I feel guilty, I feel bad saying this, but bigger pockets I really have not gotten into until this year. 
Um, my initial podcast I was listening to years ago, um, Justin Williams, the science of, or sorry, Justin Kobe, the science of flipping. Um, Justin Williams was another one that I was listening to. It was just a couple of random podcasts, but uh, Bigger Pockets has been pretty neat. We actually had David Green, one of the co-hosts, out to an event um, a few months back, and then that's when I had to like learn about Bigger Pockets. Really good one. In case he quizzed you, yeah, right. yeah. like you know that one episode. Yeah, like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Time. yeah, big fan. Sure, number yeah. forty-nine or yeah. seven. Exactly. Yeah. So that's mine. All right, uh, number three. Um, well, this kind of goes along with, I don't remember which number it was, maybe seven, but mine was know your numbers. They're the foundation of your business. Yeah, that, yep. that one. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that was my number three. What's, what do you have for yours? Uh, number eight. Number eight. Yeah. Okay. Um, go to number two. Oh, sorry. That I, mine was KPI tracking it was number eight. Well, now it. we're confused with all the numbers. Yeah. Okay. Know your numbers is your number three. My number three was, uh, you have to be a massive action taker. Um, and I think there's a trap in education and it can get like, you kind of become a, like a professional learner. And that is a step that is action taking learning and, um, like going to look at a deal. But until you do something, um, that actually has a result tied to it, like making an offer, like, Oh, somebody's going to have to respond now. Um, nothing's ever going to happen. So just hoping that, you can show up to events or mastermind or meet people without taking massive action that may be a little bit scary. Um, nothing's ever going to happen. So. I love that. One of my favorite sayings is uh, bacon and eggs. You know, the chicken's involved, but the pig is committed. Yes. So you have people that like to go to these events, and there's nothing wrong with that. They like being around people that are real estate investors because we always have hilarious stories and make fun of each other. Yeah. And it's fun, right? And then they go, and then they go back to their life, and then they maybe listen to some podcasts, but they are scared because they haven't taken some of the steps that are radical in like going out and actually making offers on places, going through a hundred houses over time to make sure you're comfortable knowing what the value of it is. Right. So Mm -hmm. yeah, I think those are, that's, that's great. All right. Number two, number two, make a plan for the type of business you want and then execute on the plan. Don't chase shiny objects. So, When you first start out, it's like, oh, flipping looks good. I think maybe I'll do that. Oh, wait, what's this burr thing? And then, like, I heard about lease options. Those are kind of cool. Multifamily. You know, it's like. Ooh, I'm going to do hard money. Yes. Oh, hard money. Yeah. <laughs> don't, hard money. No, don't do that. Uh, yeah, but I think that's a, that is a, a pitfall for a lot of newer investors and some experienced ones. You know, you get some that are kind of going after the new hot thing, storage units or whatever it is. I think. When you get to a certain point, when you have, you know, what do they say? You're an expert after 10,000 hours invested learning something. Um, I think when you get to a point where you're really, really strong and, uh, and a, maybe an expert in a certain facet of real estate, then you can layer on others. And, and maybe, maybe it's a vertically integrated business like, um, you know, hard money lending, or maybe it's title company, or maybe it's brokerage, or, you know, like a lot of, uh, like, you know, you and Jeff have done with all those businesses. So I think when you get to that point, then that's when you can start making strategic decisions on layering on businesses. But to do that in the beginning, I think you're just going to spin your wheels and probably end up failing and just being like, ah, real estate doesn't work. Yep. Uh, you definitely in this business have to begin with an end in mind. So if you just, dive right in and say, I'm going to wholesale. It's like, well, okay, what does your business look like? What are your goals? What do you want to accomplish? How much money do you want to make? Um, do you want to start earning passive income? And I think one of the reasons that Jeff and I have partnered up so well over the years is because 
we started out saying we want to own rentals. It was that simple of a platform. We wanted to buy a hundred rental properties. Um, and since the goal is 10 X, so now it's a thousand. Um, and we still have 900 and a little bit to go. So we, there's a journey ahead of us, but at the end of the day, our goal was we are going to acquire rentals and everything that we do, every question that we have, or when we need to align on something, the question comes back to, well, does this help us buy more rentals? And so it's very easy to be aligned when you start with, uh, begin with that end in mind. Yeah. And I think you, you mentioned too, it's like, it doesn't have to be super elaborate, your plan either. You just need to have a plan and a direction and then break it down into bite-sized pieces. It's like, you know, how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time? You break it into little steps that you can take action on, get some wins under your belt and some reps, and then you're going to start being more and more comfortable doing the other things that are going to be revenue generating activities like making offers and closing deals mm -hmm. and meeting with motivated sellers, all that. Awesome. Okay. Are we down to our, oh, wait, do I need my, my, did you do your number two? Did you do your two? Yep. Yeah. That okay. was the make a plan. All right. Uh, mine's integrity. We, we chatted on that. Um, so important amongst your peers, amongst sellers. Uh, if you advertise that you're going to do something, you should do the thing. And it's sad that we even have to talk about it, but it goes a really long ways when you can uh, simply act with integrity. Okay. Number one, we've arrived. How are we on time? Ted, are we okay? Okay. We're already to the number one thing that a real estate investor must have. The one so thing. This is a big moment. Owen, go ahead. Abundance mentality. Ooh. So sharing knowledge and helping others without any expectation whatsoever about getting a return. That's awesome. So is that kind of your... Um, your way of getting back me for saying I wish you'd disappear because you're a competitor. Like, yes. Okay. I actually just added. This okay. One. Important. Do you want to expound on that anymore? Um, so I, I think we all know people that are maybe negative or they've had some life scenarios that have been thrown at them where they have a tendency to try to kind of hide their secrets or their knowledge. And it is painful to watch for me. I think I just have such a different uh, mindset about it. And I really want to just be like, you don't have to do that. You can just share and people like will appreciate it. And like, it's, it's better for everyone when you do it. So I just, that's why I don't really care at all if I get anything whatsoever out of going to these, but I like helping people too. So like, especially people that are newer in the business, I've met with so many newer, you know, people that are just trying to break in and they're like, you know, you get people that are kind of like timid about, asking for your time and I get it. Right. Yeah. But when you can make time for that and you have to, again, like time block that be like, Hey, I want to make it a goal of meeting with, um, you know, this month I want to meet with six new people that I've never had a conversation with before. And you reach out to them and you set up a coffee or a lunch or whatever, or just a few minutes. And then you just have a conversation, find out about them, find out about their goals. Those, those things I think are important, but sharing your knowledge is how you get the needle moving forward with groups like this. I mean, look, Look at this group. How many people are here, Ted? Hundred and how many? A little over 110. 110? That's awesome. I mean, don't you guys have other things to do? It's Tuesday night. No. Uh, wow. I think uh, that is huge. I, it's amazing that like the more you give away, um, and you don't give it away to get it, to get back, but like what comes back to you as you give give it all away um, is amazing. And I think the worry is in this business, like especially sharing at the RIA, it's like. These people are in my market. I'm going to tell them what I'm doing for marketing. It's like, 
I don't yeah. want them to do the same thing. Yeah. But it's amazing how it works. It's like, you know what? If you all want to go out and do a TV commercial like I do, go for it. Like, have fun. Yeah. And it, it's just amazing. Like, everybody can win. And I think once you put yourself in that mindset when about sharing and teaching others and helping others grow, it's like there is so many deals out there and so many ways for us to all go win together. Like how you sell me houses and like you made money, I made money. Like it's this whole symbiotic thing. Like everybody can win. Yeah. Um, it's like, it's kind of eye opening once you realize like, oh, I don't have to keep everything a secret. Like, oh, everybody else is already doing this thing anyway. So it's like you can just share everything. Well, yeah. I mean, it's like, you know, can you imagine if we were like, oh, I don't want to share anything. I mean, like I'm on your podcast. This is cool. You know, yeah. we're competitors and you've bought how like it's, it's just so much better. Friends. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. It's so much better that way. I agree. All right, my number one, and uh, I fought with my wife a little bit on this one because I use the word um, tenacious or tenacity, and she is synonymous, synonymous, she used grit, but grit, tenacity. Um, I think in this business, you deal with a lot of rejection. You have to be ready to deal with the rejection and to move beyond it and to like be just absolutely tenacious with your goals. And one bad deal or one bad rejection can kind of uh, ruin a day, but if you let it ruin a week or a month or a year, then you won't survive. So you have to figure out what you're passionate about and just run through the wall um, and just take it and run because if you don't have that, then you, I mean, in any line of business, you're not gonna last. Totally agree. I think this is a business where people get really passionate really fast and if they don't try to put some uh, structure around that, they flame out. Mm -hmm. And uh, But I think, yeah, you have to have that stick-to-itiveness and, and the ability to withstand rejection and be like, well, this doesn't work. Well, not yet it doesn't. You haven't put enough time or reps yep. in. So I think that's, uh, yeah, 100% true. Like you can't, you can't rely on a, such a small sample size. You have to look at the end product over a period of time. And then you can judge your success. So if you're going to get into this business, you got to give it at least a year, maybe two years, and, and be like, okay, I did the right things. And then if you, if you work on your processes and your stick-to-itiveness, like things are going to happen. Yep. Yeah. That's the classic cartoon, three feet from gold, the, the gold miner yeah. Oh, yeah, digging yeah. and quitting. And there's like a giant gold nugget just behind like one more hit with his right. pickaxe. Well, Owen, can I just tell you how much of a pleasure it's been having oh, you today? This has just been so amazing. <laughs> um, Owen, you haven't really even plugged your hard money business if if you could talk about how people can reach you how they can they everybody just basically heard you say that you're willing to do coffee with them so you've got about 110 <laughs> coffee dates coming up really quick um talk a little bit probably about have to how, do it here right yeah just do it here just yeah. speed dating yeah um talk a little bit about how people can get a hold of you what you do what your business is i mean especially liquid lending talk about that a little bit. Sure. Uh, I'm pretty active in the uh, both the Omaha RIA Facebook group and the Omaha Real Estate Meetup. Uh, I don't know if anybody in here is not a part of that group as well, but we're a pretty active uh, group too that also gets together once a month. So uh, Colin Schwartz, who is somewhere, he's kind of short. There he is. Uh, <laughs> he's back there. He, he, he runs, the, runs the group, does an awesome job. We have guest speakers. Jose, who was just up here earlier, uh, is part of that too. I'm always there. I'm always commenting and um, I'm a moderator on that page. So if anybody wants to reach out to me that I'm not, you know, friends with on there, that's a great way to do it. Um, we, so liquid lending, uh, we started this, uh, I started this with Colin and uh, Chris Pomerleau, Peter Anaradian and Brandon Tauber. 
And uh, we basically started this as a result of a lot of investors talking to us and us having been through it ourselves, where you run into challenges with getting traditional bank financing and uh, getting deals closed quickly enough, especially in the pandemic when appraisals are taking you know six weeks and things like that. So we, we decided to offer a liquid uh, way to fund deals and have it just be like cut out all the red tape, right? So we've done deals literally, and I think there's one or two people in here that we've done the next day. So we've gotten a lead that came in and we got it funded the next day. Those are stressful. I don't want to advertise that we do that all the time, but, uh, I see you, uh, but so that's been a lot of fun. We started that last December, uh, September and I think we've done almost 60, uh, loans wow. since then. Um, and so we've done some transactional financing on, uh, on some apartment deals. Um, and we've done, yeah, I think probably 55 or so, uh, hard money loans. So that's been uh, that's been a lot of fun. I've gotten to know a lot more uh, investors in here, so it's it's a really good fit for people that are doing like quick turns if they're going to buy and rehab it and get out in a you know if they're going to wholetail it, that's a great fit for that because you're only paying a couple months interest. And then um, you know also we've done you know more traditional like flips that take longer, but also burrs. I mean that's a great way to get liquid and buy it, take it down, then get get uh, traditional financing on it later. So you're telling me if I have really bad credit. A little bit of investing knowledge that you guys will help a, a newbie investor buy a house. Perhaps. Uh, <laughs> no. I would say well, here, here's basically how we approach it. We underwrite the asset first. Okay. And if the, the purchase, we, we basically look at it like we're the ones that are going to buy it for the price that they want to finance. Okay. And if we wouldn't buy it, we won't do the deal. Okay. And we'll tell them that, and they probably shouldn't do it either. Oh, right? so there's some free education there yes. too. Yes, So then I've had several of these calls. Um, and it's, but yes, we will work with newer investors and there's a little more handholding and I'm, I'm fine doing that uh, to an extent. But um, we want to understand also like, okay, do you know anything about construction? Do you know who a contractor is? Like, you know, those are kind of basic things you need to have. So I, I wouldn't say we do a lot of business with brand new investors, okay. but we will consider it. Okay, wonderful. So there you go. I think it's pretty neat. Uh, I think a lot of investors, their initial biggest obstacle is, well, I can't be a flipper because I don't, you know, I can't get bank financing or I, you know, I don't have the income to do that or I don't have a down payment. But I think hard money removes that excuse. It's like, all right, well, if you find a great deal that you think is a great deal, at least, then you'll most likely fund it. One thing I just want to touch on real quick. I had this conversation with uh, with a, a couple of people recently about. I think you have people that will um, they'll be fine partnering with somebody 50 50 on a deal, right? Like somebody has money, and then somebody uh, has the, the they find the deal and they put up the work, mm -hmm. and they're fine splitting that 50 percent with the money partner that didn't do anything other than funding it. Mm -hmm. And if you look at that versus actual, because I get it, like heart, nobody likes to pay high interest rates, but if you're only doing it for a short amount of time and you can get in and out of it it's usually much better than partnering with somebody. Yeah. But when you look at the numbers, because you're paying, you know, two, three months of interest, whereas you're splitting the entire profit with somebody else. So just another way to, you know, kind of end up at the same or a different result, you know, by applying a, a method of taking it down. Owen, amazing. Any final thoughts or words of wisdom that you want to share? Just... No, th hey, this was a lot of fun. Okay. I'm, I'm excited you had me on. This was uh, this was great. I'm glad I um, uh, I'm glad I was so stressed about this all day today. So, uh, no. Can we get a big round of applause for Owen Dashner?
appreciate it. We are going to dive. We're going to dive right in. Oh. Okay, you get two. Here you go. Thank you. Um, we're going to dive right into Q and A, um, and we we are we do have microphones in the room, so please do not ask any questions without a microphone because this is still going to be re- recorded as part of the podcast. Um, so we're going to open it up. Any questions about anything? So I got a quick question to start it off. Oh, okay. Before we, uh, get going here. So I think part of the reason that we have so many people here is because people look up to you guys and you're their influence. So my question is, who do you guys look up to locally and who do you guys look up to on a national uh, scale? I I look up to a ton of people locally. Um, A lot of them are in this room. Uh, Of course, Owen, um, Colin in the room, who's over there on his phone. Him and I, 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 okay. Colin and I sat down um, when we were both kind of quitting our jobs at the same time, and it is just absolutely amazing to see what he has accomplished. Um, And when I talk about grit and tenacity, just watching him just run through walls and uh, be involved in a a ton of syndications and buying large apartment complexes, it's just absolutely impressive. Um, So local people, but uh, as far as um, nationally, some people who are in... Um, investor masterminds that I'm part of. Justin Colby was one very early on for me uh, who had a, a podcast that just kind of resonated with me. Um, just the things that he said and his mentality were, were really big. And wasn't he on one of your podcasts already? Yeah, I actually got to interview my kind of like, you know, my work idol, if you will. So that was, uh, was that Chris Ar- Arnold? Or no? Uh, Chris or- Arnold was on as well. Yeah, he was on there as well. Yeah, Justin Colby. Uh, yeah. So both of them came on. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, I think uh, for me locally, you know what's really cool about just the last two, three years that I've been doing this full time? I I felt like I was kind of hiding my real estate activities from like my employers and my regular circle of friends that I had for so long that I didn't even have like a network of people that I could be like, hey, let's talk about deals. It was always like, okay, yeah, that's cool. Let's, what, what about, you know, and then they talk about people. So I like talking about ideas and strategies and different things you can do to grow your life and your business. And I've gotten to know some just kick ass people just from going to these things. So as far as people I respect, you, and I'm not just saying that because I'm on your podcast, oh, but uh, <laughs> but no, uh, you and and Colin too, and like some of them have become my, my business partners, which is really cool. And they've been, you know, opening up doors and kind of dra- dragging me along to, stretch. And I've been used to being a lone wolf for so long uh, in this business that it's been really like fun and eye-opening and like challenging to kind of like not keep up, but just like see what's possible with a lot of the local guys. And like Ted, I also like what you've done with Aria has just been phenomenal. Like having all these people and growing this too, has been really, really cool. I know you put your heart and soul into this. So mad respect for you. For Ted. Yeah. Dan Zimmerman over here has a question for you guys. So after you guys cherry pick all the deals that you want to keep, how do people in this room buy deals from? Um, Unfortunately, I've wholesaled one house um, in my entire career. Um, Everything else that I close on, we wholesale um, or flip or do a light flip and put it on the market. So on the MLS, unfortunately, is the only way you'll see. Oh, I guess. Is Is that really? Well, I've wholetailed the house to you, but I guess I I closed on it. So I did I did whole I did wholetail. Uh, I guess I have wholetailed a few houses off market, but these days 
everything goes on the MLS. Pretty much the same. Uh, although we have done a few more more yeah. than that. Um, so you know, you've bought a few. I, here's what I would say: like people always ask me this, they're like, "Can I get on your list?" And I'm like. I suck because I don't really have a marketing list or whatever that I put it out. We're kind of, I don't, whether it's lazy or smart or whatever, we put it on MLS and wholetail it and just like let the market bring what it's going to bring. And typically that's going to be your most profitable method of disposition in this type of an environment, right? In this hot, hot market that we're in. But there are times where it's just like, you know what? I don't want to work on that POS. Like if you catch me on the right week or day or whatever, so just stay in touch, you know, so reach just text, out. Yeah, text yeah. Owen, like, weekly. Yeah. yeah. Daily. No, it's funny, though, because yeah. I get people that will do that just checking in. Like, yeah. Uh, yeah. that's it. That's all you got to say. Like, uh, nope, sorry, don't have anything. Yeah. But. So for, it's kind of a two-part question for those that are just beginning. Um, and then those that have been in the single family flipping and, and rentals and want to take that next step into the multis. What is, what would you guys say is the biggest thing that you could advise for those that are trying to at least take that first step into buying their first place or taking the next step into buying their, getting into that, the, the multis to step up into their new business? I'll go first. I'm not qualified to answer this question. I, I have a few smaller multifamily, like duplex, six, seven plex stuff. But, rooming, rooming house. Um, but I, I, do, <laughs> I do not have. I do not have a lot of experience buying multifamily. So Owen, defer to you or to other experts in the room. Okay. So uh, first part of your question was uh, those that are just getting started in the business. What are some actionable steps they could take? Does I understand that right? So I think uh, for that, uh, this is again knowing your numbers is a is the I think the first foundation piece that you need to have. You need to go out and get off your butt and look and quit looking at Zillow and actually call listing agents of houses that are the type that you want to buy. Get to know those listing agents because they probably have other properties that come up that they're going to list. That's how I did it. Um, so maybe there's better ways, but I know that worked for me. So you start talking to people that are known for listing fixer uppers, and you just get it, get to know them, right? Like just build a relationship with them, then start going out and looking at all their houses and call other listing agents. Cause what, what you don't want to do is get a buyer's agent and just completely burn them out. Right. You don't want to be like, Hey, let's go look at 20 properties today. Is that cool? And then you're like, yeah, I don't really want to make an offer on any of those, but it, it's fine. Right. You're free all, all day Saturday. So don't do that. I did that. Not good. So call listing agents, I think is a good, when you're first starting that way, you're not going to burn them. And, uh, and then to transition into multifamily, um, I think it's important if you're going to start with a smaller one that you manage it yourself at first so that you understand what it's like and the different challenges there with multifamily. Unsolvable problems between tenants. So-and-so parked in my parking spot or they're mad because the cat's meowing or whatever. They cooked Indian food or like, you know, spaghetti and it burned it or whatever, right? So you get challenges like that with multifamily, but until you understand that, it's hard for you to process exactly how to handle it unless you've actually been in the situation. So I think that's what I did again. So it's just, you know, a, a small case study here, but I bought a fourplex and I managed that and I had a really difficult tenant in one of the units. And then eventually he left and I got a better one and I got better at managing it. Um, but I think that's a, that's how I would do it again. Um, and then 
you want to transition to a property manager that's an experienced property manager that knows what they're doing, that understands multifamily, and that can help with remodeling projects as well. That's a key person to have in your in your uh, team. So, to help. Okay, Dan Friedman's got another question for you guys. Hey guys, um, a quick comment first. Um, being a new real estate investor myself, maybe six months, uh, just give Owen a quick plug. Uh, he did do our, he financed our first two deals ever. So yeah. he does deal with newbies. He really does. So thank you. And they both closed and we paid you back, right? That's right. Okay, good. Got uh, and also a quick plug for like Clint. I love the fact that he is completely wide open in his trainings. He doesn't hold anything back. In fact, I was just talking to this gentleman here, just met him tonight, how awesome this group is and how I feel confident doing and going forward because everybody isn't. Like they don't try and just silo everything. I, I, that bothers me. And that was a big thing in the corporate world that I hated. And that's really cool about this stuff. Anyway, to the question, now that you guys are successful and you guys know everything you know, if you could have that advantage of all that knowledge that you have now and go back to you know your ConAgra days or your Funyun supervising days, if you could do that and go back and have that, have that advantage though, so I know it's not realistic, would you guys just quit the jobs and go full full uh, full time in this and instead of dabbing your toes for years and then getting into it good question um I, it's i don't know because that experience in like food manufacturing and processes and systems and that grind i learned so much um and you also a lot of times in the process of doing what you don't want to do you need to learn that like you need to learn that you don't want to do that so i spent 10 years in corporate America and working in cubicles and working in factories and just realized how miserable I was. So it, it was just painful enough to help me quit. Um, so would I have quit sooner? I think, yes. I mean, naturally it would have been awesome to have like a 10 year head start to where I'm at right now. But, uh, you know, at the same time, I, I think I probably needed those experiences that, um, that I had to help me be where I'm at right now. I wish I would have quit sooner. Um, I didn't. I didn't have the. I wasn't brave enough to do it, and I didn't have enough people around me that I could lean on or ask for advice or you know do those things. So I kind of felt like I was just out on a, out on an island, and that's a, it's tough when you're doing that. And and we didn't have you know there wasn't a group like this or the meetup group or or maybe actually there was this group but it was like we were in Olive Garden and there were like six of us. I actually went. Like it was in 2006. So uh but I would quit sooner and and pursue it but he makes an incredible point on this and I think it's one that's often overlooked by people that are just like, "Oh my god, I want to quit my job." And they like are running from something as opposed to actually like going into real estate with a good plan. And, um, and, and, you know, going in to dominate. I think you learn so many things in a well-run company, um, despite ConAgra's, you know, issues, like they have a lot of really good policies, processes, you know, all systems that you can learn from and you can apply those, right? Like they're skills. And so you can, I, I would say, if you have a plan that you're going to do that, take as much as you possibly can from your, the skills that you're learning at your job and apply that to your real estate business, because once you have systems and processes down, things it's just so so much easier to lift things, you know. 
So um, I don't know if that answered your question, but I also think while you're working there, you have to take little actionable steps that are going to add up to you getting a win because that boosts your confidence and that'll get you more momentum and be able to walk away from that job you know, sooner than you probably could otherwise. But, but surround yourself with, with people that are going to encourage you and that you can bounce ideas off of. That's a good shortcut. Uh, in, in regards to liquid lending, so you're funding investors, young investors, correct? And not young. Uh, and and we're, we're non-discriminant. <laughs> All right, so, so, so are, you taking, are you taking the note? Are you taking a note on it, or you're the lender, or are you, are you joining into the note as far as your both ownership in it? Yep, so there, there are, we are basically a bank, right? So there are four loan documents. They are um, in Nebraska. There's a deed of trust, a promissory note, a personal guarantee, and a sale and loan agreement. Basically, it spells out how much you're borrowing, what the repayment terms are, just like any other you know, deed of trust or mortgage document you're going to sign. Um, but that all gets recorded. It's... It, literally does not take much time um, for us to underwrite a deal, approve it, and then, you know, move forward and work with the title company to fund it. Um, where's Al? Al, we, I, how many how many deals have we funded? At, yeah, there's a lot. So it's, it's a, we, we make it our overriding goal to make it as seamless as possible for you and as little red tape. So you, I don't know if that helps. You hold a deed of trust at at as liquid lending. Yes. You're the bank. Yes. You're the bank. Okay. Yes. So then you... Do you have an area? Is there a platform of interest rates that you're doing? Are you doing, you know, are you at 8%, 12%, 14%? Do you have a flat rate? Yeah, our, so our rate, and we'll probably get some groans on this, but we, we will fund up to 100% of the deal, right? And some investors that we have done several deals with, and there are a bunch of them, we will also fund rehab costs up to a certain amount. So we'll put all, it's a fully funded project at, at those, you know, at those terms, but it's 18% interest, no points. So when you're looking at hard money options, a lot of times you'll get bait and switch. So you'll have uh, people be like, oh, we're 10% or 12% interest. And then you look and you're like, wait a minute, there's like four points on here. And if you do the math, it's actually better to go with a higher interest rate up until about month four. So if you're going to plan on a rehab project and you're going to put money into a deal, just keep that in mind, read the fine print. Ours is super transparent. It's 18%. It's always 18%. No points. We have a $200 origination fee. Waived for RIA members. What a salesman. <laughs> wow. That's awesome. <laughs> okay, so as you guys knock on the door, the, the only thing I see is an issue. How do you, develop, how do you handle title policies? So, so you get a deal in your hand, and you go to the door. How do you know, are you hand, how do you do that initial title policy? Are you doing a quick, you have a, an agent that, or a, a title policy company that just does a quick show, look for you, and then you go pay for a full title policy when you buy it? Or how are you? How are you handling the title issues? So that's what I found. When we put a property under contract, um, it goes straight to the title company, and they're doing a title search after we put it under contract. So unless there's known issues that they're disclosing, um, we let the title company do all that work, and then we work through it after the fact. And then you have to get the seller then pay the title policy. I mean, you, you could end up with you could end up with a bad deal. I mean, well, got yeah, address, I mean. If there's title issues or clouded title or extra liens on the property, then a lot of times you have to just cancel the contract. Um, so you, yeah, we make sure we have clean title before we purchase. Yeah, and if you know doing a lot of deals has the benefit of you have relationships with title companies that will go. You know they'll be like, yeah, we can like they know. You know what I mean? They know that's a quick turnaround. Like if you're in a 
a foreclosure situation or something like that that's time sensitive, then they can expedite it and you know get get all the title work done and everything. So, good question. Yeah. So for time's sake, we're gonna kind of make these last few questions quick. Uh, we have a handful of people over here that want to ask questions, so we're, we'll kind of speed it up because I know we're over time. So are you guys cool with that? Yeah. Is everybody here okay with that? I know that we're over time. So, Jerry Schlipper. Hi guys, thank Hi, you. We have so much to learn from both of you. I thought it was really insightful how at least half of your points tonight had to do with self-development and mindset. And I hope that everybody took note of that. Um, I have two questions, so I'll spit it out so you can answer however you'd like. My first question is, are you guys currently investing in markets outside of Omaha and the Council Bluffs? And if, yes or no, why or why not? And then my second question is, with there's some crazy stuff going on in state right now, and um, construction and shortage of materials, what do you guys see happening in the next one to two, two years, let's say, in the real estate market? I'll go first, because I have a short-term memory, so if I can remember <laughs> both of them. <laughs> what was your first question? Um, seriously. Oh, I am, not in, I am not investing in markets outside of Omaha yet. And the reason being that I don't feel like I've hit a diminishing return. So I, I still feel like there's probably a lot more, I don't know if that's my, my microphone, but there's more deals in Omaha that I'm still not getting. Um, so if I feel like I hit that point with my marketing and my return, then I would move to other markets, at least for what I'm doing now. And my, do you want to answer that? Did yeah. You, okay. uh, so... As of now, I have not. We have not invested in other markets. I am going to Lincoln tomorrow uh, to look at. I have a 1031 exchange that I have a clock ticking on, so not a whole lot in Omaha uh, that I'm aware of, at least. So I'm going to Lincoln uh, tomorrow to check out, you know, the town and kind of some multifamily projects there. And then also I'm looking at Des Moines, and so I'm kind of expanding my search a little bit um, on the multifamily side. Uh, but as far as the day-to-day, -day, um, like transactional side of the business, we haven't, we've talked, we've kicked it around. Um, but that same thing, we haven't really, we felt like we've hit a diminishing return or a point of critical mass yet where we've felt the need to pursue other stuff. So. And then what's two? your outlook on the real estate market for the next couple of years? Yeah, I think um, it's not likely that uh, anytime real soon, uh, things are going to go backwards. Uh, with the increased costs in construction, builders are, are feeling the squeeze. And uh, I was just, I can't remember who I was talking to just now, but yeah, I'm hearing that builders, since lumber and, and uh, roofing materials and basically copper, everything you can think of, I, am, am I wrong here that I, can anybody build anything for less than 300 grand and make a decent profit? Right? So, so what does that mean? Are, are there, are there entry level homes on the market for, can everybody afford a $300,000 house? No, they absolutely cannot. So it's got this huge demand pushing on the, on the supply and the limited supply of starter homes. So I think those are going to continue to sell like hotcakes. And you may eventually hit a point of kind of equal, equilibrium with your um, higher priced homes. But I just, I don't see unless, the, unless they really mess around with tariffs or uh, taxation, which that could be a ripple effect through a lot of different things. I, I read an article today uh, about the Fed was kicking around um, increasing the the, uh, the rate to offset the superheated economy, which 
I don't understand that since we just got out of a pandemic, but whatever. Um, so to answer your question, I, I don't know that I see a, a steep decline coming anytime soon because there, I don't see the supply problem being handled. It's not like builders are pumping out a bunch of starter homes that's going to catch up with the demand. Yeah, I, I'm ultra conservative, so I'm riding a wave right now, but I don't know how long it's going to last. I am paying more for properties than what I paid for a year ago, but relative to the increased prices, I'm still trying to be conservative because my biggest fear is that I get too cocky and start paying so close to retail and expecting 10 offers and that everything's going to go over and then just being caught, you know, holding that bag. And I'm probably too scared um, because I consider myself conservative and cautious. Um, but I have no idea how long it's going to be crazy like this. I'm just kind of enjoying the moment. What, one more thing I wanted to add on that. Sorry. Uh, the, the dollar, I, I read something uh, about three weeks ago that said the dollar has declined by 12%, and it may be even more now. So I think that's the thing that is not talked about as much. It's the silent thief. It's the tax that isn't really a tax, right? And that's inflation. So when you inject $2.9 trillion into the money supply, how, how are we going to, like, how are prices going to go down? They can't. They can't go down. So you need to have your money into smart assets that are going to appreciate to offset inflation. And I, I don't know about you guys, but I, can you think of anything better than real estate? Nope. Colin, Bitcoin? Aaron? <laughs> so, but this is the kind of uh, diatribe that I might go on and have it not age well. So we can revisit this next year and yeah, I, this it is could look really so dumb. we can listen yeah. to it again. <laughs> Oh boy. Oh no. <laughs> we got Colin Schwartz here. Gentlemen, great job tonight. Uh, two quick questions. So, you know, we've got to wrap it up and there's probably another question. So, simply, what is the most important KPI you look at? So, you wake up every day, like, what is that? What are you looking at? Is it deals? Whatever. The next one is you guys are both social butterflies. Clint has a podcast, Owen's on lunch dates three times a day. But, but I think the most important part, and I, I want to like be serious about this, you guys are listening. You guys are listening to build relationships. What are you listening for? And what is like the most, what's the most important thing that you're listening for in an individual? So you can start with the KPI because I don't know if that uh, other question's been asked before. That, that's a really weird question, your second one. I'm trying to even understand what you mean by So what are you but, listening for when you're building a relationship? Um, what am I listening when, when, for? Yeah. Like what words for? they're so, saying? Yeah, so you're listening. You're not talking. You're listening. What, what is something that is building that relationship? Because Okay. Yeah. I get you. Because yeah. um, you just listen. Person. So. Yeah. Um, so my favorite KPI is appointments. How many people am I getting in front of? Um, because I know that one in every three to four appointments, we're going to get a deal. So all of our activity is around getting in front of sellers. Um, that's my favorite KPI. Same. Um, same? Yep. Belly to belly. Conversion on that? Sorry. Conversion? Uh, we're, we hover between 25 and 30% for our conversion rate on appointments. Do you Solid. track the channel it comes from? Yes. Does that change? It, it's it's ever shifting, but okay. yeah, earlier on, I kind of shared our top three drivers. 
Um, what am I listening for as I'm networking with people? Um, I think my favorite thing that draws me to people um, is what they're passionate about. Like what is their thing that they love to do? And it doesn't just have to be real estate. It could be like their favorite hobby or sports or something. But I'm, what am I listening for is when somebody is like super passionate or motivated about a thing. Um, because it, to me, that's kind of like life. Like that's, you can see life come out of somebody when they're sharing what they're passionate about. I like to go until I find common ground with questions. So I try to establish something that we have mutually in common, whether it's a place, a thing, a person, a, a hobby, and then uh, you know spend time talking about that. And it gets people and you more comfortable with that person. And you start to relax and open up more and then you know just take it from there. So I just kind of, I'm a naturally curious person. So I ask people a million questions and, and uh, I think just kind of take it where it leads. Oh, tell me more about that. So I like to ask open-ended questions. I don't ask a lot of yes or no's. And that I, I, my kids have taught me that, right? Like how was school? Oh, I was good. Like, tell me about your day, I think is a great you know way for kids, right? So you can, do, you can use that when you're meeting with people too. Tell me about what you're interested in. Tell me about what's going on in your, in your business right now. And that, you know, leads to further questions and more conversation interaction. Okay, so we just have two more questions, one here and there, and we're gonna wrap this up. i just like to first compliment both of you guys on a fantastic podcast. It was really informational. Thank you. A lot of content. Thanks, Lamont. Uh, a lot of your uh, top 10 cross with each other. That's no surprise to me because high achievers, high net earners, we think a lot. Okay. Uh, I just want to compliment you on your podcast today. Job well done. But as I was saying, your top ten, both of you, a lot of them cross paths. Mm -hmm. And high achievers, net, high net earners, they think a lot alike. One of my deals is on my systems, I have it near the top. You had yours at um, number nine. Mm -hmm. And you had also your uh, time block and your, your cautiousness at number eight. I'm a little curious, what would you tell me, because I have my systems at the top as far as uh, networking, mm -hmm. uh, conversion, and solutions. So what would, how would you speak to that real quick? I, I guess my, my top one and two were more around characteristics, uh, integrity, and tenacity, um, because I feel like that can that's a lot of horsepower. If somebody is just hungry, um, they can actually accomplish quite a bit without being very organized, just their ability to break through walls. So the reason that I put systems a little further down is because a lot of times that comes with maturity. Um, as you're growing a business, you start to understand that you have to put some systems and processes in place. But um, if you're hungry and have grit, go a long ways. Yeah, I agree. Um, I think, and especially too, when you, when you look at uh, certain types of businesses, you get people that are really skilled uh, at a certain trade. So you see this a lot in the construction right, uh, uh, trades. You have somebody that's a really good at, uh, they're a really good carpenter. And then people are like, oh, you should start a carpentry business and blah, blah, blah. And then they are good at doing the work, but not great at other areas in their business. And I think that's where systems and processes really come into play. And you have to make that an important task, but you're right. You can power through a lot of those things, your inability to run a good business. You can just do from, you know, other skills. But I think as you keep going in it, it becomes more and more important that way, there's no way you can continue sustained growth without having good systems and processes. Yeah. So, yeah. Last one. 
Um, Clint, we were in your class this morning, and uh, something you said kind of woke me up like right away. What Kim and I are seeing in the market is short sales are taking up. Mm -hmm. There's lots of bankruptcy going on. And now we have this moratorium on payments that is going to end very soon. And I wondered what you guys thought as far as the opportunities there's going to be for investors, because especially for the single family homes that we're talking about that are in that one to $200,000 range, that's what we're seeing, you know, people are really struggling with. That's a bad thing. Yeah. Bad things happen to good people, but there's a definite opportunity I think you were bringing up in your class this morning. Yeah. And, you know, I really, I haven't thought of that much, but um, when I talked earlier about my business constantly changing, um, we could hit a season where we're getting most of our deals at the auction you know, or buying up foreclosures or short sales, focusing, making that um, more of a focus. So definitely I think as the market shifts and as things happen, um, we have to adjust. It's, it's weird times right now. You've got people that are doing extremely well, like they're blowing it out of the, or they're, they're blowing it out of the water and their businesses are just kicking ass. And you have other people that are like, you know, like I was off work for six months and they're just trying to scrape and get by. So it's kind of a, a strange uh, economic environment we're in right now, and especially related to housing. And with the kicking the can on the eviction and foreclosure moratoriums that's been happening for the last year, um, I think the government probably will try to introduce some other type of stop uh, on on that. So it could get kicked even further down the road. Um, and. I, you know, who knows? I, we, we just don't know what the, when they monkey with the different uh, legislation, what, what's going to happen with it. But I think you're right. And like, like right now, your business could change from like wholetailing is kind of the end vogue way to disposition a house, right? Because you get the most eyes on it. It's a super hot market. You don't have to do anything to a house because everybody's looking for a house and they'll just settle, right? When a market starts to cool off and there is more inventory or more days on market, that's when you need to adjust your business and look at, re at positioning things or dispositioning things. Maybe you flip more. Maybe you put more money into projects to make yours the nicest house instead of just a house, right? So I think short sales and foreclosures, like Clint said, I think that is going to be something to keep an eye on. I thought if you would have asked me one year ago, I would have bet that small office and retail would be the canary in the coal mine on this market. Right. I thought for sure, 100 percent, we'd have a bunch of people in bankruptcy and small businesses going under like more so than we have. So I thought that was going to be kind of the tip of the iceberg on what was going to happen in the housing market. But I think time will tell. But, uh, you know, who knows? Have fun. Make hay while the sun shines. Right. Awesome, guys. Let's wrap it up. Big round of applause. Woo. Thank you so much. Yeah, really. Thank you, buddy.